Good morning. How is everyone this morning? I hope you're doing well. Merry Christmas to you as you have already greeted each one in the room with that. Grab your Bibles today. We're going to actually, the bulk of what we're talking about today is from the book of Hebrews chapter 4. And uh, we're continuing in our Advent series entitled, uh, This Year Will Be Different. And so how do we make this year different in our lives? But before we get to Hebrews chapter 4, we're going to stop off in Genesis 3, Luke chapter 2, and 2 Timothy chapter 1. You got all that, right? Yes. Well, it's going to be on the screen, so it helps you a little bit this morning. But I want to talk to you about... Well, Luke or Hebrews is kind of maybe you think, well, that's a very strange place for you to take a text from concerning that of Advent and this being the Christmas season. But I think it's very powerful as it speaks to us about that of the coming of Christ and who he is in our life. As you begin to read through the Bible, starting with the Old Testament, what we realize is this, that there's two common threads that we find throughout Scripture. Those two common threads are that of promise and fulfillment. And if you look at the Old Testament, what you realize that it comes under that category, by and large, it comes in the category of that of promise. And then when you get over to the New Testament, by and large, it comes in the category of that of being fulfillment, fulfilled through that of the work and the life of Christ. And, and for our understanding as bookends of the text this morning and bookends of Scripture, that I want to, well, I want to start by reading in the book of Genesis for a moment. That is our first bookend. The other bookend would be in the book of Luke chapter 2. But Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, it is the word of God that's spoken right after man's sin about the fall of man and how it is a promise. It is perhaps one of the very first promises that we find in Scripture. It is Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, he says, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. What, is, what we know this is theologically, we've talked about this many times together. It is what is called the first gospel, the proto-evangelon. And, and that is, it is God's promise that man is broken because the sinfulness in his life and disobedience to that of the guidance of God. And so what happens is God says, here's the promise. That I'm going to fix what's broken in humankind. I'm going to fix what's broken in your heart. It is that I'm going to fulfill this. So where does he fulfill this? You go to the book of Luke chapter 2 verse 1. It's a scripture that we should probably read during this time of year. It says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world would be registered. There was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Verse 3, And all went to be registered, each to his own town, and Joseph went up, up from Galilee to the town of Nazareth, Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David. Verse 5. And to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger, because there was no place for him in the inn. And when I begin to look at these things as bookends of that of promise and fulfillment, I begin to think, well, how much time did this take between these two bookends of Scripture? How much time? So I begin to research and look, and what I realize is from that of Genesis chapter 3 to Luke chapter 2, there are about 4,000 years. In fact, some theologians say 4,024. But if it's 4,000, who's going to argue about 24, right? Yes? So 4,000 years, 75 generations. And what I realize when I read this about that of promise and fulfillment, that for 4,000 years, you were on God's mind the entire time. 
That's an amazing thought that you and I were on the mind of God that entire 4,000 years. It starts with Genesis. You're working your way through all the promises of the Old Testament, which are about that of Christ coming, the Messiah coming for the redemption of mankind. And then when you get into that of the New Testament, that we find the arrival of Christ. He comes for that very purpose to redeem mankind from their sins. And so I had this thought. Why did God wait so long? You know, why did God wait so long to do what he promised to do in Genesis chapter 3 in verse 15? Why did he wait 4,000 years? So someday I will have the opportunity and you will to ask him that. But I begin to speculate. If I were God, I would have, I would not have waited 4,000 years. If I were God, then I would have sent Jesus the day after the ark landed after the great flood is when I would send him. Why? Because there was only one dysfunctional family in the world to deal with, and that was the family Noah. Yes, I would have sent him then. What an easy job, right? Yes, but they were highly dysfunctional. Not going into all the details about his family, but extremely dysfunctional. I would have, I would have maybe sent Jesus during the great exodus, the wandering of the Hebrews in the wilderness, because they complained all the time. And if Jesus had shown up, it would have shut their mouth and stopped all the complaining. But that would not have worked either because they had his word, but yet they still complained. And sometimes when we look at these 4,000 years... We think, well, history is just rolling on on its own is kind of what is happening here. It's kind of setting its own course that somehow God is trying to make this happen for 4,000 years and it's just taking him this long to put everything together. Can I tell you something about God? I think it's important that we understand this about him. God rules history. History does not rule God. Realize that. That history is played out through the very hand of God himself. If you read texts like, well, there's a text in the book of Daniel chapter 2, paraphrasing, it says this, that it is God who changes the times and epics. He removes kings and established kings. That kings and nations do not rise and fall unless they rise and fall through the very hand of a sovereign God. Understand that. That God was and God is continuing to guide history this very day. And he's guiding history throughout these 4,000 years to simply for to make sense to you and I the coming of Christ. That's what this is all about. It's about the revealing of God to us. It's a revealing of the heart of the Father toward his creation. That God loves us because he is on. we are on his mind for over 4,000 years. Yes, over 4,000 years. I remember, you know, Reba and I this year married uh, 40 years. And so I remember dating. And, and man, I remember those times when just before we were getting married that she went back to Arkansas. And, and yes, she's from Arkansas. I saved her from that state. Isn't that amazing? Yes, right? And, and she's from Arkansas. And she, would, she went back before we married. And, and every night that we would call each other on the phone, that's back when actually our phones had a cord attached to them. Yes, way back in the day. Not stone and, and like chisel. Okay, not that far back, but yet they did. And there was actually this thing called long distance charges, right? So we had to wait till real late at night when it was cheap to call. And so we would call and we would talk for hours. And man, I would go through the day and I thought, boy, I just don't know if I can last another hour without speaking to her because I love her so much. God simply works through 4,000 years of history with you and I on his mind because he is simply creating this track, this, this simply, this trail for you and I to follow to make sense of who Christ is and that of him sending Christ for you and I. It's an amazing thought. 
It really is. That during all of that time, that we're on the very mind of God. And, and, but, but here's something that's even, I think, even, even uh, more wow than that. That the entire time that God is doing this, God knows us. Isn't that crazy? That God knows us. He, I mean, he really, really knows us. He knows everything about us, everything in our mind, and our heart. He knows everything about us. And so I begin to think about that. And it takes me to this, it takes me to this understanding of how that nothing is hid from God, that everything is open to God, and, and God has known us from, in fact, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 says this, that who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of our own purpose purpose or because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and so what that simply means is this that even before Genesis even before the book of Genesis even before the protoevangelion the first gospel even before that that we are on the mind of God and on the very heart of God, that God understands that he will redeem us from the sins of our life, and even he knows everything about us. There's nothing that's left that's unknown to God. He knows everything about what we're capable of doing, what we have done in life, how many times we have done it. He understands our messy and inconsistent ability to follow him in obedience, all of that, and he covers all of that with his grace and his mercy. He knows everything about us. He knows everything about us, and yet he responds to us in love. That's an amazing thing. Yes, and when I think about that, I think about, well, this is the time of year that you exchange gifts, you know? And so maybe you have an office party, and so here is the thing that, you know, you go to your office party, and they set a limit on the gift, right? And there's always someone that is exorbitant, and and they're extravagant in the giving, and there's always someone that's really cheap, right? Exactly, yes? And and you always know that you you don't know whose gift you're getting, you just pick a gift, and so you pick a gift, and what you realize is that this year, you've gone very conservative because maybe it's that season in your life that's all you can do it's all you can do but then you choose a gift and and you open it and whoever gave man they far exceeded the ten dollar limit right i mean they far it's very extravagant and you realize that what you brought is even less than the ten dollar so you feel very inadequate when i think about god and, and understand this that god responds to me in love even when he knows what i bring in my box He does. God still responds to me in love over those 4,000 years that I am on his mind and I'm on his heart. He knows everything about me. There is all, everything is open. I'm a complete open book to him. All living in the shadow of his grace and his mercy. And so I think, what is this about God knowing everything about me? Well, that led me to the book of Hebrews. That's because here is a verse that I, I, I have read to you before. I want to share it with you again. And we'll continue through these few verses again in the, in the remainder of Hebrews chapter 4. But Hebrews 4 and 13 says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. They're naked. We are naked and exposed to him to whom we must give an account. And, and I thought about this a lot, you know, that we're very uncomfortable when we say the word naked, aren't we? Especially in church, right? Can I tell you something? I'm going to say it a whole lot today, all right? So just get over it, all right? Just understand that. Yes. So we're going to talk about it. It's in the scripture. I can use it. It is here. And when I think about this, I think about I think about the dream that some of us has had in life. You know, I don't know if you know the dream I'm talking about, but it is a nightmare. 
It's that dream where in the dream you find yourself in public somewhere, whether you're at work or whether you're at school, but you find yourself in a public setting. You say, Mark, what is so bad about that kind of dream? Well, you find yourself in that setting and you're naked. You have no clothes on, right? Yes. I would ask how many have had that dream, but, but I want, you know, but just keep it to yourself, I guess, so to speak. Yes. And you say, Mark, but what's wrong with having that dream? Well, I'll tell you what's wrong with that, having that dream. Because if you're in a class and you find yourself there in the dream and you're naked, you're the only one that's naked. Everybody else is clothed. That's the problem with it, right? Yes. That's the problem. You say, would it make it better if everyone else was naked? I don't know. That's your dream, okay? You live in your own dream. I, I, I don't want to get into that, okay? So here's the thing, right? Yes. <laughs> that, but, but, you, but you wake up in a cold sweat. You wake up with the praises of God upon your lips because you thank God it was a dream, right? Because it is absolutely a terrible nightmare that you are having. Can I tell you, when I read the book of Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13, what I realize is that we're living the dream. We are living the dream. That there are no secrets in our life to God. None whatsoever. No, secrets are a myth like Oompa Loompas. Do you know what Oompa Loompas are? Do you know what they are? Yes, right? If you don't, Google it. You'll never be able to spell it anyway, any, right? Yeah, but, but they're not. It's from Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. Yes, it, it is a myth, right? Secrets are an illusion. Regardless of however dark and deep they are in our life, they're absolutely an illusion. Can I tell you, God knows everything about us today. Everything about us. It's not as if he just discovered that either. No. In fact, if you go back to that text from the book of 2 Timothy, what I realize is that our redemption was planned even before the ages. So what that means is this, that God has always known everything about me, even before it has taken place within my life. He has known everything about me, yet he still responds to me in love. He is The word is omniscient, that he knows everything, that he lives both in past, present, and future. So he is all-knowing. Yes, but the question is this, I think, for a great Advent Sunday morning is this. You know, do we live like we're naked and all of our hiding places are not really hiding places at all? Yes, because it's very easy to hide during this time of year. It's very easy to hide behind the manger. It's very easy to hide behind the tree. It's very easy to hide behind all the carols and all the things that we do. But yet inside of us, we are hiding so much brokenness and so much pain within our life. And we're hiding sin. And when we talk about this nakedness, we become very uncomfortable. We have been uncomfortable with this word nakedness since Genesis chapter 3. Because since Genesis chapter 3, you and I have had something to hide. Yes. Because when we know after sin that God comes down to simply find Adam and Eve, that he finds them hiding because they've realized that they are naked. They realize that they are unclothed. And I thought, did they not know that they were unclothed prior to all of this? And I think I had a couple of thoughts. The first is this, that they were no, there was no need for clothing because the mall was not a part of the creative order to begin with. It was not. So there was no need. But I think really what it is that the world was absent of shame. Sin brings shame. And so it was absent of shame. And because of that, there was nothing to hide. But from the point of sin, you and I have been trying to hide our brokenness from one another, from God. We've been trying to hide the sin of our lives, the struggles of our lives. And some of you are sitting here this morning and you think you're hiding those kinds of things. So what are you hiding? 
What are you hiding? Well, Mark, I thought you would come and talk about the wise men this morning, you know, or the magi. Come on. You know, that's what we want to hear right here. Uh, just a, what, Sunday before the Christmas Sunday? We want to hear about the shepherds is what we want to hear about. No, no. God wants to talk to us about our heart this morning and about how you are hiding. Because some of you are hiding, you're hiding sin this morning, you're hiding shame, you're hiding guilt, you're hiding where you feel like you have failed in your life. Maybe, maybe as, as a spouse or as a parent, you're hiding those kinds of things as if somehow you could hide those things from an all-knowing God. You're hiding in anger, you're hiding behind bitterness, you're hiding behind regret. Some of you even hide behind your wonderful sense of humor because everything in life to you is a joke. Oh, You're getting too personal on Advent, Mark. You need to stop, you know? No, no, listen, if anything is personal in in Scripture, we find that the coming of Christ is absolutely personal for you and I. Some of you hide that of avoiding responsibility. That's what Adam did. What did God say? Hey, Adam, why did you mess up like this? What does Adam do? As the man that he was, he said, God, it's the woman that you gave me. That's the problem. Yes. And we've been hiding behind things since then. Why why will this year be different for us in Advent? Why does this season why is this season going to be different for us? Because today I believe as we hear the scriptures, not just my words, but as we hear the scriptures this morning as they speak to our heart that we make this decision within our lives. And I think we have to do that, that we realize that God is sovereign, but man has a responsibility, not an effort, but a responsibility to make a decision, that we make a decision within our life this morning to begin to live with the understanding that God knows everything about us, yet he still responds to us in love, that he didn't create us to live in this shroud of secrecy within our life, but he responds to us in love by giving us the greatest gift that ever been given, and that is his son, Jesus. That's how the incarn- that God responds to us with the incarnate Christ, knowing everything about us. Yeah, he knows everything. Do you even know everything about the person sitting next to you this morning? Do you know that? Boy, if you knew everything, you might want to like put some distance a little bit, right? Yes. You said, but Mark, I'm married to them. I've been married to them 40 years. But yet there's still things that you may not know about that individual. God knows everything. So he responds in love. Here's a couple of thoughts this morning. It's this. The first thing is God sends the incarnate Christ, each beginning with this, to live as we live. He sends him to, that's the incarnation. That's what changes our life. The the writer of Hebrews, who is actually unknown to us historically, theologically, some say it's very God himself, after he tells that secrets are a myth, that God knows us, that God knows everything about us, then he says, wait a minute, but here's a fix. Here is a fix for you understanding that because it's, you know, it's one thing just to expose a secret in our lives because when we just expose a secret in our lives, well, that that's like judgment is what that is. But what mercy is, is that we address the exposed secret with a fix, with something that's going to fix that within our lives. And so that's exactly what the book of Hebrews does. And he says to you and I here in Hebrews 14, and 14, we continue, since then we have a great high priest. And, and I have to stop there to make an explanation for a moment. 
that the writer refers to the Old Testament priests, and that is that that is the man that would simply go into the Holy of Holies at the temple, and he would make a sacrifice for the sins of all the people, of all the Israelites. The Israelites could not go in within themselves because God would simply, it would, they would die. So they had to send a man in, and that was the priest, and he would go and he would plead the case for the people before God. And so it says, and since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. And I underline that part, through the heavens, because what this means is this, that you and I can travel the galaxies as we might someday. Yes, but we're still in the heavens. Jesus, it says, he's outside of space and time. That makes him everywhere at the same time. That's how he knows everything about us. He is in the past, he is in the present, and he is in the future simultaneously. And then it says, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. What is this, our confession thing? What what is this? It's in the shadow of who he is, is the way it's written. Yes, that he is our high priest. He is the mediator between you and I and God, is what he is. And never paint God the Father as this grumpy, bearded old man who simply is waiting for Jesus to come and beg beg for our forgiveness from him. That's not God at all. God's heart is extremely exposed to us in that he gave his only begotten son for you and I. So it is God's love for us that forgives us. It's not that Jesus has to beg for that. It's not that at all. But when we look at who he is, when we look at who Christ is, what we realize is this, that there's no way that we can make ourselves right before this kind of God. This kind of God that doesn't just live in space, but he lives through space, that he is present past present and future in our lives, this kind of God, there is no way that we can make ourselves right before him. It just will never work. No. There used to be, I don't know if it's still out there, but there used to be years ago when we would put bumper stickers on our cars, you know, and there was this bumper sticker and it always, it would say, get right or get left. Have you ever seen that before, right? Yes. Now, if you want to build a church, then put out a sign out front that says, get right or get left. Yeah, because people will flock to that. They absolutely will. What is, because what it says is this. We want you to do the impossible, is what it really says. We want you to do the impossible by living right before this God and getting yourself right before this God. But look at the God that Hebrews is talking about. It is not possible within ourselves. We cannot fix ourselves. It is an absolute myth. Understand that. Because this is Jesus who is outside of the space and time continuum. Our confession is this on this Advent Sunday is this, that simply my life is a mess and I need him to help me. That is my confession. That's it. That I need him. That is our confession. That is the centering uh, fact of our existence this morning is that we need him. That's it. That's my confession today. That I need him. That I cannot make myself right. No. But I do realize that I am covered in the righteousness of Christ so that when God looks at me, he sees me in the righteousness of his son. I understand that. But as far as me making myself right, that is absolutely impossible. It is. That my greatest need in life is I need him. Verse 15 says this. For we do not have a high priest 
who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Now, what this is talking about for a moment, because he uses the word weakness, it talks about weight within our lives. It's the weight of sin. It's the weight of life itself. He uses the word weakness. It's that moment in our life when life just catches up with us. And man, we have those moments in our life when life just catches up with us. Yes. And what God is saying to us in Advent through Hebrews is this, that in that moment when life catches up with you, in that moment when you feel the weight of life, whether it's sin or whether it's a struggle or whether it's a fear or doubt within your life, when you're feeling that whether you've caused it or it's something out of control completely within your life, that you have a high priest today, a great high priest who is able to sympathize with that. When you're overwhelmed, when you're distressed, when you feel the weight, the Son of God sympathizes with us. After Sunday morning service last week, Reba and I, we go home and we, we throw some clothes in a bag and we jump in the car and we head back to Charleston, South Carolina, where he had just driven back from uh, that Saturday prior. We head down there, and, and you know, our son Grayson has been hospitalized, and, and, and we, are, we are worried about him, and he has a partially collapsed lung, and, and so we're, we're just wondering what is going on, and you know, we're, we're parents, we're, we're worried, and, and we probably drove a little bit out of grace on the way down there. We did, yes, right? And you say, well, the Lord was with you. No, no, God got out way back around Columbia. He said, I'm not driving with this fool. It's driving like this. No, no. And, and, and so we, we got there. I think we got there the fastest we've ever got. It's like the Lord parted the Red Sea for us, and we got there. No traffic. It was absolutely amazing. And so we spent three nights sleeping in an ungodly, uncomfortable chairs next to our 19-year-old son. And you say, but Mark, he's a man. He's a man. Why did you do that? You should have went and got a hotel room and went out to eat. No, I don't care whether he's 19 or not. He's still my son. Yes. He, he, he's still, I, don't, don't quote this, okay? Take this out. He's still my baby, all right? He is still my baby in some aspects. He, he really is. He's our baby, all right? Like I gave birth to him. I did not. I was there, okay? And what I, you know, all it's going to take is one man to get pregnant. There'll be no other children. Trust me, right? Is that, that's it. And, and so, yeah, but we slept there with him. I even did that with my oldest son. He's 36 and I did the same thing. Absolutely. You wake up in the morning, you feel like a pretzel is what you feel like. Yes, because you just can't get help. They take x-rays at 4 a.m. Why? I, I don't, can you come at six? You know, I mean, 4 a.m.? We're bored. Let's go wake up somebody and take an x-ray. You know, kind of deal. Right. It, it, it's what they do. Like your body's different at 4 a.m. in the morning. And is, is it 6? I don't know. I, I don't know. Yes. But, but as we were there in that room and we we're very concerned and, and God, has, God has healed him and he's doing great and his lung is inflated and he's doing extremely well. But as we were there, what I realized and I was thinking about this teaching this morning, that God was there with us. But God was not there as some outsider trying to desperately connect with the distress of our lives. That's not at all because God was absolutely in the middle of the distress of our lives because God has been there and he sympathizes with those struggles of our life. He's there. He knows. 
He knows everything about us, but yet this is the way he responds to us. That still amazes me about the love of our God in our lives. It is. What if we had this God who had never experienced these things? It's like it's like the person always wants to give you advice, but they've never done anything in life. You know that person like that? Yes? Yeah. They, they, well, if they're near you, don't look at them right now, okay? Just kind of look at me, all right? Pray for them, yes? But there's this person that simply always wants to give you advice, but you know that they've never gone through this. They've never, as we used to say, walked in your shoes, so to speak, those kind of things. How do you feel? Oh, you feel offended. What are you? Who are you trying to tell me what I should be doing right now in my life? And you feel what I'm feeling and you understand absolutely. Absolutely not. And what I realize is this, because we see God as that sometimes. And Hebrews reminds us on this Advent Sunday morning that the incarnate Christ and the coming of Jesus is that he sympathizes with our feelings. Why? Because he came as fully God and fully man so he could do that. So he's in the middle of the mix of our lives because he understands. He understands. I love this. We have this view of God sometimes as if God is up in heaven and he's somehow wringing his hands, kind of trying to figure out how to fix us in life. And that's not the God that we serve at all. That's not our Lord this morning. He sympathizes with our lives. He understands that. He's sympathetic with us because he's been there. But you said, but Mark, that still doesn't fix the brokenness of my life. That still doesn't fix that brokenness in my life. So what makes this so different than just a good-hearted friend who comes to me and says, Hey, I feel your pain. I know what you're going through. Oh, it is different. It is different because here's the second thought that God sends the incarnate Christ to live a different life than we have lived. He lives a different life than we lived. Yes, he lived as we live, but he also lived a different life than we lived. Look at verse 15 again. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one in every respect has been tempted as we are. Those last three words make all the difference in the universe. Yet without sin. That's the game changer. That's it. Yes, it's when your friend comes to you and they want to console you or sympathize to you and they say things to you like, hey, I know your pain you're going through. I feel the hurt. I have been there. I have been there. But yet here is the catcher. Here's the thing that they can't initiate or they can't affect change in your life. All they can do is be sympathetic with you and pray with you and maybe encourage you. But what I realize is what sets Jesus apart from just a friend is this yet without sin. Because he accomplished what you and I could never accomplish. And so he can affect change within our lives. But he never sinned, Mark. How can he understand that, you know? How, how, can, he, how can he really connect with me if, if, yeah, he had the temptation? Absolutely. But, but he never gave in to the temptation. How can you? Can I give you a C.S. Lewis quote? You say, Mark, why? You've given us hundreds of them. Why not give us another one? Can I give you the longest one I've ever given you? Here it is. It's from Mere Christianity. And, and, and this is it. I put it actually in, uh, that's part of it, okay? Just, that's one of the many slides. But it's, in, it's on your bulletin. Let me read it to you because I think it's so powerful. I've read it over and over and it speaks to me so powerfully every time. A quote from Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says, No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know, know how strong it is. After all, 
you find out the strength of, and again, you have to realize when this was written, okay? You find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives into temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would be, would have been like an hour later. I, I love this. Listen, uh, that is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. <laughs> you say, Mark, wait a minute. Don't listen. This is C.S. Lewis. That they have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside of us until we try to fight it. It's what it says. And Christ, because he was the only man, this is the part part, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is the only man who knows to the full what temptation means because he never gave into it. The only complete realist is what he says. I love that. That's how he knows. That's how he can make a change within our lives. Because he never gave into that. That is beautiful, I think. Listen, Christ never comes to you and says, Hey, I, I, I know what you feel, man, because, you know, I've been down that road. I, I jumped into that hole. I've been there a number of times. I committed that. I did that. That's, not, that's never, where, never what he says to us. But understanding this, that he understands the temptations of our lives from the powerful fact that he never submitted to them. He understands the hurts of our lives. Verse 16, let us then with confidence Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The throne of grace. The throne of grace. Well, I brought it with me this morning. You say, Mark, is that what it looks like? I thought it looks like something much more extravagant than that. Well, that's what I, we could find or I could find in a back back there. That's the throne of grace. And when I thought about the term throne of grace, the word throne always simply for me would mean something like power and rule and, and justice and judgment is what the throne would mean. But then the writer of Hebrews, he calls it a throne of grace. And when I see the word grace and I put those two together, man, grace means mercy. What, and, and so this is, this is a throne that both is out of power and rule and, and that of justice. And it's also a throne of, of mercy. It's such a powerful depiction of that, of the very character and the nature of God is what it is. Yes, that Jesus is this high priest um, who transcends time and space. But yet he also has this heart of mercy for you and I, that he is intensely eternal, but yet he is very intently personal within our lives. The throne of grace, and it's so powerful, it makes it such a great Advent text because it's a powerful picture, that of the incarnation, that of who Christ is, that he is fully God and he is fully man, that he is like us, but yet he is very different than us. It's the season. It's, it's where we are this morning in this Advent season. So, so I thought, how, how, do we, how do we really capture this thing this morning before we pray together in a moment? How do we really capture all of this together, this throne of grace, us coming to him with confidence? And that is that he is sympathetic to us, even though he knows everything about our lives. How, how do we do that? And so what I realize is this, for some of you, if this is the throne of grace this morning, if this is the presence of God, that for some of you, there's a real barrier in your life this morning. They're, they really, there's a huge barrier. So here's the thing. I, I have to have a volunteer, and I'm going to use David. Thank you for volunteering, David. I appreciate that. David, could you stand up? You don't have to come on the stage. If you mar- walk over here in front of the throne of grace, 
Be careful of the throne of grace, okay? Now turn around and look at the back of the building. In the back of the building is a square on the carpet right back there. You see it? You see the square? Could you go back there and stand on that square for me, please, sir? Okay. Anytime. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. All right. <laughs> now, now, here's the thing. And, and, and try to paint this picture for you as an illustration this morning for, for a moment. Okay. When the book of Hebrews relates this powerfully to that of what the priest does in the temple in Jerusalem. And so that's why I wanted to talk to you about that, this, this for, for a moment together this morning. The barrier that you feel, the barrier that you feel in your life is as old as absolutely the Old Testament itself. Because at the, in Jerusalem, that if you were not a priest, then you were only allowed to get so close to that of the presence of God. There was always barriers between you and, and that of the presence of God. So I put David out there, and, and if I really understand uh, you know, the theology and that of the temple, what I realize is that David is standing about right about half the distance or even less than half the distance that you would have been allowed to get close to the presence of God. And so here is the thought. David, if you take about five steps forward, okay? Take about five steps forward. Okay, now what happened to David is this, that he just died. Okay, that's the, that's the reality, is it, right? Yes, that he's gotten too close to the presence of God and, and he is no longer. It, that's exactly what would happen. Go back to your square, David, thank you. You follow directions very well, I mean to say, okay? And just stand there for a moment. So what would happen is this, that since man couldn't get to the presence of God, then man has to have a priest. Man has to have a priest. And so, Matthew, can you help me for a minute, brother? Matthew is the priest, okay? So, Matthew, if you'll walk out to David for a moment, and this is the way this works, okay? And so the priest would simply be that of the go-between between sinful man, us, and that of the presence of God. So after some cleansing would take place, then the priest would make his way into the Holy of Holies. Matthew, you would come this way. David, you can't come, okay? Because you're shrouded in sin and shame and guilt and all those kinds of things. So you stay right there, okay? And so he, would, so he would simply work his way to God, and he would plead the case of David to God is what he would do. That's how this all worked. It's tiring, isn't it? It's absolutely frustrating. Think if you had to come to church every Sunday and you had to go through this process. Yes, yes. It, it, is, it is absolutely mind-boggling to think that this is exactly what they had to do. And so David couldn't approach God. But here's the thing about the priest. Here's the thing about Matthew. Matthew is a Levite, okay? He is from the lineage of Levi. He is a, he is a priest, but yet he is, well, he's a son of Adam. So that makes him sinful. And at some point in history, the priests become extremely sinful and corrupt. So what happens is this, is that, Matthew, could you sit down right there for a moment, please, sir? Then all of a sudden, man is hopeless. Man is absolutely hopeless because even the priests who being their sons of Adam, their Levites, are sinful themselves. So something has to happen. Do you see this? Something has to happen to fix what is broken in our relationship with God. And so what God does is this. On a starry night, in a very obscure town called Bethlehem. God sends a baby to a virgin named Mary. 
to fix this very situation. He does. And so the coming of Jesus as the incarnate Christ, who is our great high priest, he fixes this for you and I. There's a barrier between man and God, and man cannot get to God, and so something has to be done, and so Jesus comes. Travis, can you help me? Because you probably look most like Jesus in the room, okay? Could you help me? Okay. Could you go to our sinner brother back there? Yes, there he goes. He has the Jesus thing going on. Yes. He embraces him in love. Yes. That's what he does, right? Yes. And there's no condemnation. There's love. And then what you do as that of the priest is you walk him to the presence of God. Just bring him here. Yes. You guys are so lovely. And I take this one. Yes. You see, here's the thing. And you guys can sit down. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Here's the thought before we pray. Is that none of that happens without Jesus. Do you realize that? None of that takes place without him. And so for your life this morning, oh, you have barriers. But I would call them perceived barriers. Because in in reality, what happens to you and I when Travis goes and gets David is this. That David is still David. Understand this, all right? David is still a sinner. David is still has the propensity to sin. He is, he is still born with the seed of sin in his life. So he's still David. So what makes this different? And what makes this different than the scenario before of David having to stay in the square and the priest come? What makes this extremely different is this, that now that David is covered in that of the righteousness and the holiness of God, that he can come to God. Because you see, this was never a problem with God. God has always wanted to be with us. God has always, from the very beginning of time, before the ages, God has always wanted to be with us. Second Timothy proves that to us. So the problem has never been with God. The problem has always been with us. Because God is holy and we are unholy. So God sends Jesus to fix that within our lives and he covers us with his simple, the holiness of his son so that you and I can approach his throne with the scripture says confidence and that's not a confidence in me and that's not a confidence in how good I am or how well I can simply make myself look before God but it's a confidence simply in this it's a confidence in who Christ is and who I am not and that makes this the most beautiful thing that's ever taken place in all of eternity that's the gospel that's it So what I'm saying to you this morning before we pray is this. What the scripture is speaking to us is this. That the barriers between you and God today are perceived barriers. They're not there. They're only a lie of the enemy to you this morning. 
They're only a lie of the devil. He will tell you today that you are unworthy and you're not good enough and you cannot go to God because God's going to find out all of those things about you. And can I tell you, it's a very twisted truth for you, but it's the truth that sets us free that this morning you are not good enough and this morning you will never be worthy enough and God does know everything about you, but his response is this, that he sends Jesus to cover you in his holiness so that you can come to God with confidence in who he is this morning. So all the barriers and all the excuses, as as real as they seem to you, are perceived excuses and barriers because Jesus came and he removed all of them permanently. They're gone. The greatest thing about Advent today is that for 4,000 years you were on the mind of God, even before that you were on the mind of God to fix this. Because He has always wanted you with Him. with your brokenness and with your failures and ah, with all the crazy things that has happened in your life. He wants you with him. Well, I can't come to God because remove that from your vocabulary this morning because Jesus gave his very life to take that phrase away from us. He loves you immensely. He's been in love with you since the beginning of the ages, God has. He hates the things that harm you, but he loves you. Today, the walls are gone because of Jesus. So would you bow your heads for a moment with me? Father, in this season of our busyness and in this season of ah, all the hustle of life, that may we take a pause this morning. May we take a moment to come to the throne of grace with confidence. Father, not a confidence that we find in ourselves or our inner strength, but a confidence that one we find in who you are and who we are not. And Lord, that's the beauty of Advent and that's the beauty of the gospel. So Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit working in our lives that we truly, with everything within us, believe this morning regardless of what the enemy tells us as he is speaking to us right now, we know, but we hear the truth from you today, God, that, that the barriers have been removed. They're gone. That we don't have to stand in the square at a distance and gaze into you and somehow wish that we could be there. But yet we are with you. You are with us. You are in us today. 
So today we move past our fear and our doubt. Father, we bring those things to you because you are our great high priest who is sympathetic with every feeling of our lives. And you love us. Thank you, Father, for freedom in you this morning. Thank you for that, God.